Welcome to the Lisa Show Book Club. I'm really excited to have Gaina Lynn Condi here with me today. Thank you for being here. I'm excited. This is part four of our book club look into Alone Together by Sherry Turkle. We're excited to really dive into this book. Um, we're really to the halfway point. If you haven't had a chance to check out parts one, two, and three, I really encourage you to. We've talked about a lot of really great themes as they come along. But uh, without further ado, we're going to get into some of the themes with chapters eight and nine, growing up, always on and growing up tethered um, for this particular section. So um, I thought it was really interesting when we're talking about this book, Alone, Together, that this section starts with cyborgs. I thought you would really think that was really great. <laughs> I'd love to start off with that, of just being, having technology. Yes, it's just a tool, but like you're one with it so that it doesn't like interrupt your flow. But I was kind of feeling called out when I read like, but that's how we all are. Like, how often are you without your phone? And if... How do you feel when you don't have your right. phone? How do you feel if you don't always have everything in this connection? It also has a connectivity and, as Sherry puts it, offers new possibilities for experimenting with identity. So I'm curious as to how you feel about how technology is kind of changing the ways that we see ourselves. Well, I do think at times it pulls me out of being intentional in the moment because I think my online persona and the work that I try to do there, I feel like there's always a little bit of a filter of, is this an experience that I would share? Instead of just being like, I just had lunch with a friend and I just was like, phones down, be here, be yeah. intentional. And I think sometimes we believe that certain influencers are curating their online persona, but I feel like the author makes the case that we all at some level do that yeah. because we pick and choose what we share. Yeah, you can't do everything right. or even like live right. stream everything. I think it's not necessarily the Truman Show, but yet the Truman Show where you're constantly videoed from every angle and nothing is unfiltered isn't as um, maybe out of this world as you might <laughs> Well, As it was when it came, like that movie came out. It's like literal your avatar in some way, yeah. right? And it does at times wig me out a little when I encounter people in public mm -hmm. that I realize I've offered this information about my life. Mm -hmm. They may not be offering it as much on their profiles or on their end. And so they know everything really that I've shared and they're up to speed. Like they know what's happening with my kids and what new book I have out and blah, blah. And I really don't know anything about yeah. them. And, and it puts so, you on unequal footing as like does. a friendship. That's so funny because at the end of this chapter, and so I'm kind of like skipping ahead, but that's what you do in a good book club, right? Right. You just skip ahead where your fans become friends or your friends are fans. It's right. kind of a different phenomenon. We, Because I, I, I would be hard-pressed to think that anyone would think, oh, yeah, I, maybe this isn't true. I don't know that I'm posing the question. <laughs> finish, I'm re-thinking it. But let me finish the sentence. Yeah, of like if on Facebook or Instagram, for example, all of the people that you're friends with, right. that you friended or invited onto this platform, um, are they friends in real life? All mm -hmm. of them. Do you know them? And and like you said, even if you do, it is unequal depending on who shares. And who's just the consumer or the voyeur, really, yeah. the voyeur. And I think the book makes a really interesting case about these like 
play life experiences. I don't go there. Like I don't have an alternative. Like second life like or second an avatar life. on a game right. or World of Warcraft right. or something. That's mm-hmm. not, I can't speak to that firsthand, but I realized that in anything that we're curating socially on these public platforms, we are in, in an essence giving a snapshot of our yeah. lives. And depending on what you share or don't share, you're giving a version of what I, I try to, like personally, I try to give a wide variety of posts so that people don't always think it's always this amazing hanging out with Lisa on the Lisa show, right? <laughs> well, There's other yeah, things happening in my life, but <laughs> right? I, right? I think we get the perception sometimes that everyone's in Hawaii, everyone's got everyone a new car, is in Hawaii, right? Yeah. Everyone's kid got a scholarship to Harvard. Yep. Everyone's checking all the boxes. Everyone has grandbabies. Every. That's Hint, the one for wink, wink. I'm, yeah. I'm too young to have children. But. <laughs> but I think that what was fascinating to me about the book too is that it's an updated version. So there were moments Isn't that fascinating. It really was like because the way she hasn't edited it out in the updated version, all of how important Facebook was at one point. It's still for me, but in but 2017, my, yeah, it's yeah, it, it was, was different. It was like the thing that teenagers were really thinking through. No way now. Teenagers are like, what? They're like, it's chewy. Yeah. And also Instagram is even old. Like, what? You're not on Snap or TikTok then. You're like, so that was an interesting kind of pass through the past for me. What do you think that it it teaches us? Because the book brings this up and Sherry talks a lot about her research. She does a lot of case studies of like, I tried this and then I wanted to see where these trends. What do you think that it's saying then about the path that we're on towards technology um, kind of shaping our identities? Because now we have had a few more years, five years since the last publication of this, um, to see how it's shaping our our identities, our family's identities, friends. Um, what do you, th- what have you observed well, I do feel like th- there was some cringy moments for me. And as I was reading about the the specific example she gave of like executives that can't really go on vacation and they're trying to use vacation where there's not Wi-Fi so that they really can disconnect, I think that's a huge red flag on any of our mental health if we're always on, which is the title of the chapter, right? Yeah. That feeling of every email you answer could create a snowball of 10 more emails. Yes. I remember that part of the book. I was the same thing of like, yeah, it's true because you have the illusion of productivity, but it is kind of creating more work. And it's interesting because at the beginning of the book, she talks a lot about how we want technology to solve our problems, right? right? And right. we set it up. It's this tool. And I think we thought we were doing that. Right. I think we thought we were solving all these problems to create more leisure time for us to spend with our families. And it has, in reality, created less time. We're, well, we're busier than ever. My husband and I have two very different careers, Mm -hmm. but we use technology in specific ways to do our jobs. And I did have a conversation with him the other day. He's not a doctor, but he's, he works with doctors. It sounds like he plays them on TV, but he works with them. Um, (laughs) And I said to him, if you were a doctor, it sometimes feels that you're always on call doctor. And even doctors have days they're on call and days they're not on call because it takes a toll when you're always on call. Mm -hmm. And so I think an alternative chapter heading for this is always on call. Like the fact that you can always get an email and always get a text. And you expect the person to send one immediately back, not like wait a day or two or five. Right. And then what does that say about what we feel about each other on 
professional levels, not just the personal levels, which she does some really good case studies that were sad for me of these alternative lives in these alternative universes where people are more comfortable in their fake avatar land world than they are in their real life and their real kids and their real marriage. Mm -hmm. That was sad to me. I think it's easy if you're not a part of those to think, oh my gosh, that's so sad for those people. But it's not shocking, is it? But it's not shocking. And I think the reality is, is if you're constantly answering email, are you ever at home or are you really always at work as well? Is that not an alternative identity as well? Or are you face to face? You know, and and I, those case studies that she dies into um, also have a different kind of effect on our kids than I think we thought they would. I had this moment reading in this chapter of, oh, I do this, you know, where I felt a little bit of guilt, not because because I thought I was doing something right. So specifically, um, the I like what she says about the internet's effect on young people is paradoxical. It's easier to play with identity, but harder to leave the past behind. Mm-hmm. Like you make a mistake, it is recorded. It's there, it's there forever. When we were teenagers and nobody was like taking video and pictures of everything that we did. Right. We had to wait till like lunch on Tuesday, maybe Wednesday to find out if you didn't get invited to a party on the weekend. Yeah. Instantaneous, you know now. And so that's helping to shape their identity, but also it inhibits teens to turn away from real time demands. Mm -hmm. Role-playing games are community, but exhibit an unexpected nostalgia that they haven't even experienced. Right. And um, they resent the devices. And I've seen teenagers and she talks about how teenagers are interviewed and they're like, oh, I wish there was a time there where we didn't have it. So they resent it, but yet they're never without them, and they don't want you to take them away. So it's this paradox uh-huh. of that they're growing up in, and they f- they feel it, I think, even more intently than we did. I thought I was doing a big favor of, and being a responsible parent by always knowing where my kids were. And one of the main reasons why I gave them a cell phone was to, so I would know exactly where they were. And if I text them, boy, they better text me For back. For sure, because we're paying the bill. Yeah. But I didn't realize that teenagers used to, as part of a necessary development of identity, have autonomy Mm -hmm. and have time and space alone to figure stuff out. But they know these kids are always tethered. They always know, oh, if I get in trouble, I just go, I call mom, I text dad or whatever. And, And that's their solution. They don't figure it out on their own. Right. And And there's a cost for that. That, that. In chapter nine specifically on the growing up tethered, I thought it was so interesting how it was like, when was the last the last time you felt that you didn't want to be interrupted? And I thought oh, for a moment, yeah. like, when was the last time I was in a situation where I thought, I really don't want to know what's happening on my phone. And I don't want to respond to anyone on my phone because I am so present. I gave my son his first little, like, kid cell phone, Mm -hmm. which you could only do those, like, three programmed phone numbers. It fell in water pretty quickly after we invested in it. But I was going through some health stuff. And we lived on a street where everyone just hopped from backyard to backyard. And I was pretty sick. And I wanted to be able to get a hold of him. And yet I remember summer days where, like, goodbye in the morning. Yes, you went to And then kick the can at night. And it was dark. And then we finally would crawl back into the house. And I think we romanticize a little bit of what that was like, mm-hmm. but I think she does a really good job. So that's the cost. But I see now my kids that are in college, we have communication now that I can support them, that if it was just based on phone calls, like when I was in college where I had to like call collect mm-hmm. home, mm-hmm. I, 
I and think you it were was, looking at the clock yes, to see how much it cost yes, per minute. Yes, and the and the operator never said my name right when she called collect. <laughs> she was like. Collect call from Dino, and my family was like, yeah, Dino's calling again, and it was me, because she yeah. could never, my kids don't even understand trying to nope. get change and put it into the right, and so am I grateful that during finals week, I can hear from my college daughter, and I can send her funny memes, and mm. she can say, this is how my mental health is going, and she's not just isolated in her dorm room? Yeah, I am, but... I think that's interesting as I look at both my kids progressing. Have they had enough of that autonomy time yeah. where they're not connected? When do they have the right to be alone? And if we don't give that to adults, then for sure we're not giving it to right. teenagers. And, and we're hovering in this idea of helicopter parenting. We always blame the mom. We blame the moms for everything. Yes. Uh, as if we've created this. But society is built up this way. Right. If you don't know where your kids are, you're a bad mom. Right. If they're There's alone. bumper pads uh-huh. all the time. And this free-range parenting and things like that, like our identities are already being shaped by our technology. But I worry that it's it's crossed the balance. Mm-hmm. And and this these chapters made me like really rethink this in a different way. Um, and Sherry Turkle made me think. Yes. Sherry Turkle makes me think. Because she said, um, when is downtime? When is stillness? And talked about Huck Finn, which I really, really I loved. The rite of, and, and the rite of passage. That whole story is a rite of passage, right? Where you're discovering and figuring out everything in kind of a dramatic way, right? Um, away from parents. But now that's been transformed. Well, and I love what she said. Traditionally, development of intimacy requires some privacy. Oh, I loved I, that That was part. huge. I was like, underline, yeah, how can underline. you be intimate with somebody if you don't have the assumption of privacy? Right. But now we have less and less right. assumption of privacy. So that, of course, is affecting our she intimacy says, levels. intimacy without privacy reinvents what intimacy means. Separation, too, is being reinvented. So, like, I think— We're reinventing we're what it means. We're reinventing everything. But I did, I did love, like, I think I'm of the age where it's like, in the good old days. Yeah. Like, we had to go to the library and check out an encyclopedia and do bubble gum cost a quarter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I hear myself sometimes talking that way, and I loved the 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 analogy she gave that so much of what we don't have because of technology, there is a version of that in the eighties and seventies that was also happening. The example she gives. Yeah is that like when you're on vacation or she gives students that are on study abroad, they're really never in that other country because they still know what's happening back at home. Yeah, they never leave home. They never really leave home. She gives the analogy of, do you remember the day where you would go on family vacation, but you'd still be writing handwritten letters to your boyfriend because you miss them so much? And I thought, oh, we were always as teenagers, those other people outside of our family became so important. Well, now it's just tethered by a phone but we were trying to create that same tethering, but it was old school way, right? With a stamp and an envelope or a po- postcard. Right. So were we were we never really uh, like? Are we romanticizing this escapism that we thought I we didn't know. do? Because I, I think we did know. it in different ways. Because I'm thinking like a specific. I remember when I went home for Christmas one time, and it was the first time I had ever been away from my boyfriend um, for two weeks. I mean, we hung out every day. This is before cell phones and everything. Right. And it was two weeks of not knowing what he was doing, Uh who he was hanging out with. We just, I don't know why, but we just decided, oh, no, I think we just called each other on Christmas. But to kind of see how we really felt about each other. Did you really feel? And I feel that time and that space of not talking to him made me miss him in a way. And have clarity. 
that gave me clarity about Which is, I, I think, really what she's wanted it. And had I not had that, had I just been texting him all day, every day, it, what would have been different? Right. Had we been like FaceTiming and right. texting and, oh, now I'm going to do that, it wouldn't have seemed so romantic of being separated by time and distance. And I do not forget that time when we saw each other, when he came over to my apartment, when I got back and from- And it was like slow motion it running. It was like slow motion and wind blowing in my hair. And I looked at him and I was like, I oh, love you so much. A hundred percent. Yeah. I do. I married that boy, Caitlin. I married did. him. Yes, but all I'm saying is, is that we underestimate that stillness, that time, that separation. That space. We don't even talk about right. it. Right. Right. And you know what? I did try to intentionally realize that when my kids chose to go to college pretty close to home, like not out of state, that I had to create a fake version of that separation. Oh, interesting. So I remember saying both my kids were different on how much they wanted to communicate. Shocker. (laughs) Right. But I remember saying like to my daughter recently, you know, I'm purposefully not texting for this whole day to just create because she's about to leave. Yeah. And leave the state for an extended period of time. And I've realized, like, I've seen her on weekends because college was close enough. She could text. She could Marco Polo, FaceTime me, whatever. And so I do love the idea of creating maybe some ways of doing a pseudo um, autonomy and break so that we're aware of the blessing or the benefit of having the technology and the connection but also maybe putting language. She doesn't offer it in this chapter, but that's where my brain went of like, Uh wait, how did I kind of problem solve that? Or how have I created a pseudo version of this to accommodate it? Because I do worry, I don't want my kid to go out and feel like mom was always there. Well, and I think that you're doing in this true spirit of what Sherry is is calling for, which is to be more intentional about your decisions and how we use technology. It should be a tool that benefits us Mm -hmm. and not just something that happens to us and redefines relationships and autonomy in ways that we didn't intend. Mm -hmm. And I love what she says, that autonomy and strong personal boundaries Mm -hmm. as reliable are reliable signs of a successfully maturing self. Mm -hmm. And, And she makes the case that if we expect our to grow up and be mature, um, and that was going to strengthen relationships, and and how can you ever have a a strong you know relationship or marriage if you don't have a mature sense of self, and if you're never alone and you don't know that the gold standards tarnishes if a phone is always in hand, and I was really um, struck by um, how like in the olden days or before <laughs> technology. Um, just to, to be able to see how far we've come. If you had a college freshman that called home 15 times a day saying, well, what kind of deodorant I should love I buy? This too. What kind of, what should I, should I go to class or should I take a nap? Should I do it? And if you just, for every little decision, if, if that- It would have been a flag. It would have been a flag. Like, she's not thriving. We need to get her some counseling and that's not okay. So what's the difference that now, if you're texting your mom or your dad or mm-hmm. whatever to problem solve and make all those decisions for you, all day long. If you sent 15 texts, nobody would bat an eye right now. So what has changed? What's changed then is what what Sherry says is our definition of of what being connected and what being autonomous. And I've seen with my own kids that it has been a healthy mental health tool. On the flip side of that, technology Mm -hmm. can be not great for your mental health, right? Yeah. I, I think one of the saddest parts that she kind of explores is that you, without the separation from social and and tech, uh-huh. you don't get that sense of who you really, yeah. really are. Yes. And I and I would say too, like this is where you can see kind of the dating, the date mark of her 
yeah. of her research that Facebook and friend requests became that whole junior high brain. Yeah. I think right now it'd probably be more like followers on Instagram or views on followers a, and likes or views and, of your video uh-huh. or whatever that is or likes, right? I, I do think that that was such a beautiful like reminder to adults that that junior high brain is still alive and well. It oh, just yeah. well, it just shows up in a different for way. It. It's for sure. Like, um, I wondered too to, um, about this. I had never considered this, but how technology and how we're redefining autonomy and self. It, you kind of think, oh, so what? Who cares? But it actually plays into a narcissistic like lifestyle. Like it actually rewards narcissists. I know. So person, she says, a personality is so fragile that it needs constant support. Like we think we're doing like reassuring our kids all the time and helping them solve their problems with technology and and ourselves too. I keep saying like kids as if we're like immune to it. Right. We're not. Um, constant support, that's a, a narcissism. And it narcissistic um, self gets on with others by dealing only with their made um, to measure representations. I will only need, like, I need this from you. I need this right now. And that's it, uh-huh. right? Others are part object if it's not gratified. Well, right. if you can't answer my text, then I'm just going to text this girl. Right. Or I'm just going to do right. this. Or I'm Wasn't just going to fascinate somebody else. It was like, wait, mm-hmm. this friend isn't going to validate my feelings. Oh, then, then I'll I'm going to text my other friend. But in it, but dealing with people and how nuanced they are in relationships. And complex. And, and we complex, don't need each other's and, needs. And um, forgiving and taking time out to you know, for human frailty <laughs> and and working that kind out is not rewarded with the way we're using technology now. Listen, and I she, think that's groundbreaking. It is groundbreaking. And I do think she calls out the parents like it was a little ouchy of how I many know. times did my kids come home and I'm working from home. Mm-hmm. And so I'm saying hi, but I'm really back to the computer or I'm checking the phone or they've watched their parents check while they're driving or right? And then they're going to do better. And then they slip right back into it. It's almost like this whole social structure. I just wonder how many times we all feel invisible and ignored. Yeah. And we make it- And put on hold. Yeah. And we make it look like it's just an adolescent issue, that Mm -hmm. it's affecting their inability to have eye contact, the nuance you just said, the complexities of human spirit and frailties. Mm -hmm. It's, It's the adults too that are like, multitask, multitask all the time. And I think especially for moms, I just think working moms that are trying to also that- Hold it together. Hold it together. And there are certain stages of mothering where like to have that outside of your house connection beyond diapers and the same bills and the same dishes, there's power in that, right? But where's the line where then all of a sudden I'm in the phase where they're, they're out of the house and I'm like, come back. Let's do more Legos. I'll put my phone down. Like I'm having those regret feelings. And when I was reading these chapters specifically, I was like, yeah, how many times did I kind of cycle in? Like, wait, I've become too tethered. I need to have more boundaries with myself so that my my family sees that I'm present or my friends see that I'm here. I think that's what a good book does, right? Like it ju- it makes you feel, it presents you with the information and lays it out in a way that said, this is what I've observed, you know, and for her as, um, you know, an analyst and and dealing with the psychology of how people really, really interact with each other is saying, this is what all my research has said. Mm-hmm. This is what I've observed. Th- when I talk to all of these experts, this is what they said. And she just kind of lays it out right here in the middle of it and and just said, you know, you are, this is what I see. 
and then kind of steps away from it, and you get to draw your own conclusions. I really identified um, at the end of the chapter, like with Brad, when he said, um, it's too much, you know? Even the minimum is too exhausting of, like, you got to, like— post something or decide what you're going to post and then respond to people like and all the platforms it's just too much and, he and was I know exhausted. a lot of people like that and he was exhausted but he said I'm also thinking of myself in a bad way because he said you get reduced to a list of favorite things and it feels like reduction uh-huh. and betrayal to yourself like well this isn't like who I really am these are just this is just a little part of me and and none of us can do it perfectly and so it, it makes us feel like we're reduced to a few things. It, it doesn't even help our self, core self feel great. When you addressed uh, body issues on your previous series, I think it's the same thing. Like, is our technology reducing us? Is our bodies oh, yeah. reducing us? Is Are we becoming so myopic in how we're defining who we are? And it's easy to do that. I do love, though, that she was super self-revealing um, when she's like, I've done all this research, yeah. and this is all the stuff, and yep. this is what it costs. But my daughter now lives somewhere else, and I'm really glad she's texting me all the time. Yes. Like, all of a sudden, as a yeah. researcher, she's like, no, no, no. I don't want to give up on it because this is so powerful when it comes to the, that anxiety. Mm-hmm. We haven't even talked about that, right? Like yeah. 9-11 and the anxiety of like, did anyone answer the phone call or the text? And like, why it, we feel like uh, we have, because of an emergency, oh, we have I, to be. I've done that as a mom where I can see. But like, it creates more anxiety. Right. And you can track and you're all of a sudden like, wait, where are they? And why have they been there for four hours and not answering the phone? So it's a whole new dynamic of what does it mean for our parenting? What does it mean for our psychosis when we show up? And like, you know, I have to be careful. Like, um, I kind of knew why you were on that date for so long and what was going on there. And <laughs> and I'm thinking my parents wouldn't know unless I had told them any of that information. Mm-mm. And so it is fascinating. I would love my point in saying all of that is I'd love to see like the third edit version of this oh, five years from now. Right. Because you can see there's been this progression of where technology was, what research she did when she wrote the first version of the book, mm-hmm. where it changed so much that she had to do an additional version. I kept wondering while I was reading, what's it gonna what would be the edits and a version oh, of this yeah. five years from now? And it, that's why I really appreciate you coming on, Gaitlin, and b- doing a great job of talking about the themes of this, because I do really feel like the themes, particularly in these chapters, eight and nine, are things that we will be talking about in yeah. the future. And they're better questions than, well, how much time are you on? You know? Exactly. It gets more to the heart of it. They're more complex because it is complex. It's yeah. good and it's bad. It's not it all one thing. So thank you so much for being a part of the Lisa Show Book Club. Uh, we have been in part four, chapters eight and nine. Um, we if, have all of these different uh, sections that you can go back and look at, one, two, and three. I hope you will. And join us next week as we are in section five. We're going to be looking at chapters 10 and 11 and talking about, well, will we ever make a phone call again? 